Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. But you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give you this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from the oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore on oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was towards evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today. And show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you've chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he'd finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, 
filled her jar and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too and until they've finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a beaker and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. We continue reading at verse 59. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servants and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister May you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her maids got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. 
she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Uh, Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, Great to see you. If we haven't met before, my name's Andy. I'm uh, the Minister for Students on the staff here. And um, do keep uh, Genesis 24 open in front of you. We're going to be looking at that together for the next little while. Can I say, Alison, thank you very much for uh, taking on that quite substantial reading. And I bet you were glad that uh, we skipped a little bit in the minute, but we will uh, skip a little bit in the middle. We will think about... um, that as we work our way through. Uh, Paul's prayed for us already this evening, and so let me ask you a question as we begin. Uh, And my question is this, how does God grow his kingdom? How does God's people, those who have God as their king, how how does that number grow and extend in the world? Uh, One of the stated aims of our church here at Fullwood is to grow Fullwood Church. And um, that's not an aim of ours because we're sort of into empire building or because we just want to get bigger and bigger for our own egos or something like that. It's It's because we believe that God has made incredible promises, incredible promises in his gospel for those who trust in Jesus. Oh, we believe that God promises forgiveness for everything you have ever done wrong to the one who trusts in Jesus. We believe that he's promised us a new relationship with him, our loving creator, if we trust in Jesus, a new freedom, meaning, and purpose to life. We believe that God has promised that one day he will fix our broken world, and for every person who knows Jesus Christ, that they will enjoy being there with him, a life that goes on through death and into eternity. See, we want to grow because we believe that God has made incredible promises. And so as a church and as individuals, who wouldn't want others to be caught up in those promises, to enjoy them for themselves, to believe them? Uh, But more than that, we believe that God is in the business of growing his kingdom too. We believe that he's a generous and loving God and that his heart is for those promises he's made to extend to people all around the world and here in Sheffield. And there's no shortage of advice on how the kingdom ought to grow, on how God ought to do it. I was reading just recently in the Church Times. Uh, If you've never read the Church Times, I, I wouldn't hurry to buy a copy but, um, but when you work for a church, it's the sort of thing that sometimes you find yourself reading. And, um, and there was an article there that was, um, that was arguing that if only the church would get with the times and would leave behind some of those teachings of the Bible that our culture finds offensive, then the kingdom would really grow. There'd be people queuing up to come in if only we got with the times. Uh, I've, uh, I've seen books on church growth 
that lay out the particular model. If only we changed our services to be a bit more dramatic or a bit more traditional or a bit more dramatic and traditional. How we'd manage that, I don't know. But um, uh, church growth books that, again, give the secret recipe that would really make the kingdom of God grow. Uh, If I'm honest, in my heart as I've thought about this, I wonder whether sometimes I've thought that if only I was a bit more impressive or when I spoke to my friends who don't believe in Jesus, a bit more convincing in my arguments or a bit more intelligent, then maybe then the kingdom would grow. Well, this evening, we're going to be thinking about the question of how God grows his kingdom. And um, there are lots of passages in the Bible we might look at to answer that question, how does God grow his kingdom? But this evening, we're going to look at Genesis 24, And that might be a surprise to some of us. And um, if it's a surprise, if it feels like a strange choice to think about the question of how God grows and adds to his people, just think about this for a moment. God gave his incredible gospel promises to Abraham. We've seen that together. If you've been with us, if you were here last year and um, the last few months of this year, we've seen that God gave his gospel promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. God promised Abraham that he would undo the curse, the right judgment against our sin, that he would reverse it and take it away and bring blessing on people. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great people, that the blessing to Abraham would overflow to his descendants and to people from all nations as they believed this promise. God had promised that they would live in a great place where they would enjoy a perfect relationship with him. You see, God gave gospel promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis. They're the promises that Jesus described as the kingdom of God. The promises that the New Testament says Jesus died to secure for us so that you and me are caught up in the promises to Abraham when we believe in Jesus. And here in Genesis 24, we're coming to the end of Abraham's life. And the big question that hangs over the whole section from Genesis 23 to 25 is how will God continue to grow those promises as Sarah dies in Genesis 23, as Abraham is buried in Genesis 25? How will God grow his people beyond this family, Abraham and Sarah? He's given them a child, Isaac, who's grown up to be a man, but he's single. How will the promise extend beyond this two parents and their son in a culture of arranged marriage? Well, we need Isaac to find a wife, don't we, in Genesis 24, for God's kingdom and his promise to extend. Uh, There's a little um, handout tucked in the bundle you were given. If you're a scribbler, you might find that helpful. And um, the first thing that we see in Genesis 24 as we search for a wife for Isaac is that God's kingdom grows as his people trust his promises. God's kingdom grows as his people trust his gospel promises. We're going to see Abraham do that in the chapter. Um, Just uh, have a look down with me for a moment and notice 
Notice the number of obstacles that stand in the way of Isaac finding a wife. Uh, obstacle number one. Have a look at verse three with me for a moment. Uh, Abraham calls his servant over. The time has come to find the wife. And he says to him, in fact, makes him promise. Verse three, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Obstacle number one, Abraham says, he can't marry any of the local girls. You travel up to the northeast, a long old journey to Mesopotamia, where I'm from, and you find some of my distant relations, and you find him a wife there. And the servant says, verse five, I think quite reasonably, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country where you came from? You know, if the promise of a guy she's never met doesn't work for her, you know, maybe I could you know, take him with me. Obstacle number two, verse six, make sure that you do not take my son back there. Just try and think your way into this for a moment. So um, Abraham says, um, uh, I need a wife for my son, and let's say she has to come from the south of France. That's a sort of similar distance from Sheffield to uh, Mesopotamia from um, where they are in the south of Canaan at this time. She has to come from the south of France, but um, just one hitch, he can never go there. That limits the options somewhat for Isaac, doesn't it? Obstacles thrown up in the way. So, so why does Abraham, why does he make it so hard for Isaac to find a wife at the start of this chapter? Well, he gives us a reason in verse seven and following. Have a look at his reason. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath saying to your offspring, I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife from my son from there. See, why does Abraham not want uh, a wife from the local girls, but one from his family? It's not sort of racism or something like that, but because the promise God had made was for Abraham and his family. You see, Abraham believes the promise even though it seems to make things harder for Isaac. Again, why does he not want Isaac to go out of the land of Canaan and up to Mesopotamia? Well, verse 7, God promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. See, what if Isaac ended up settling in Mesopotamia and, um, and stayed there and the promise is lost? Abraham believes God's promise and he believes that God will provide to keep his promise. Even though it seems to make things drastically harder for his son Isaac to find a wife. Now just think about this for a moment. Um, Genesis 24 comes after and in contrast to Genesis 16. See, back in Genesis 16, if you remember it, uh, God had promised Abraham a son, Isaac, and, um, and, 
Abraham and Sarah are getting on in years and they're thinking, um, how is God going to keep his promise? I mean, we are really getting very old now for God to give us children. And eventually, they cook up a plan. Abraham has a child with his maidservant, with Hagar, and they have a son called Ishmael. And you see, in Genesis 16, Abraham, he looks at the pragmatics of the situation. He looks at the possible outcomes, and he says to himself, we've got to do something. We've got to make this work if God's going to keep his promise. But here in Genesis 24, Abraham has learned the lesson of his earlier life. And so when it comes to finding a wife for Isaac, he says, look, don't worry about the outcomes. Don't worry about the consequences. God will keep his promise. I'm going to trust him and stick with him. Just look at how he describes God in verse 7. In verse 3, he's called him the God of heaven and the God of earth. Here in verse 7, he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out from my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on an oath. The God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, the one who's in control of every detail, Abraham says, has bound himself to me with a promise, a gospel promise. And so I trust him. And you see, this is the nature of faith in Genesis 24. This is how God will grow his kingdom in this chapter. As this ordinary believer trusts God to keep his promise, when it's not pragmatic, when the consequences are unknown. Uh, I was part of a small group a few years ago, and um, uh, one of the men in the small group told us that uh, he'd been put under quite a lot of pressure by his boss to lie to one of their clients about something. And it had been made quite clear to him the impact it would have on his um, future career tra- trajectory with the firm if he, um, if he didn't tell this lie to the client. In some ways, maybe to look at the, the, the details themselves, it, it didn't feel like you know, the biggest lie in the world. You know, this is not sort of Enron or something like that we're talking about, but, but it was a lie nonetheless. Uh, and around the group, we, we talked about what some of the consequences might be for this bloke. You know, what, what might happen for his career? You know, could, could he find a job somewhere else? You know, the boss is asking him to do something unethical. Could he report him to someone? Or all of these sorts of things. And, and talked for quite some time about what some of the outcomes might be or what, what would be the best course of action. And, and an older guy in the group, after we'd talked for a while, just said, um, don't worry so much about the consequences. Do what's right and leave the rest to God. And you see, that is faith in Genesis 24. Abraham does what's right. He clings to God's promise, to God's word, when it's unpragmatic and the consequences are unknown. It looks like it'll make it borderline impossible for Isaac to find a wife. The servant has to go find the exact girl. And verse 8, if the woman's unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. See, Abraham believes that God will keep his promises when it's very impractical. 
And we see the same kind of attitude with Abraham's servant. Because um, if those weren't obstacles enough, there's a third kind of obstacle in this passage, which is the servant's kind of genius plan involving camels. Just, um, just look at what the servant prays in verse 12 for a moment. Uh, then the servant prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you've chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I'll know that you've shown kindness to my master. You see, if it wasn't hard enough that he's been um, sent up there to Mesopotamia to find a girl and Isaac's not even with him, he then prays to the Lord and says, let it be the exact girl who comes to this exact well and is willing to, um, unprompted, give water to all my camels. Now, we know from verse 10, he's got 10 camels. And um, if you're at all familiar with camels, you'll know that they drink a lot of water. So this is not a small undertaking that he's asking here. And yet again, in this prayer, what we see is that the servant really believes that God will keep his promises. He's entrusting the matter to God. See, the kingdom grows as God's people trust his promises. Even when it's not pragmatic, even when the consequences are unknown, even when it seems to make things harder and put obstacles in the way. Uh, Listen, I want to just pause on that just for a moment because... um, It'd be worth thinking about how we've got here. I think Genesis 24 is actually a very good passage for us to just think for a moment about how you read the the narrative sections of the Old Testament, the histories, the story. Because, I don't know, when when Genesis 24 was so um, clearly read for us, I wonder what you thought that the sort of the main theme running through the story was, what we were meant to learn from it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps there might just be one or two who were thinking of this sermon on, on Christian dating advice. Um, I'm not sure. Paul says he's heard this sermon preached from this passage before. He wouldn't tell me what the headings were, but you can imagine how many single people might have prayed something like verse 12 on their first date. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. Um, I don't know quite what you'd do with camels in Sheffield. Um, I suppose there is a stuffed one in Western Park Museum, isn't there? Although um, quite what you'll do with that, I don't know. Um, probably, probably not Christian dating advice. Uh, what, about, what about the sermon on, on Christian guidance? I mean, after all, the, um, the servant here sort of lays out a fleece doesn't he, if you've ever come across that expression before. He, he prays, Lord, um, show me if this is the right um, girl by her being willing to give water to the camels. And so maybe we think, okay, you know, if I say, would you like a drink? And she says, yes, a Bacardi and Coke. Well, she's the one. You know, there we are. But I suspect that's also not where Genesis 24 is taking us because, you see, both of those examples... Both, both of those talks um, assume that the Old Testament is a book 
of sort of moral examples for our lives, a book of heroes that we are to emulate in every way that we can. But the Old Testament is not a book of moral examples. It's the story of a great God and his gospel promises, his promise to fix a broken world and to bless people who deserve his curse because of the way we've treated him and one another and the story of how people trusted that promise and how God was faithful. And again and again, the, um, the New Testament looks back on Abraham and doesn't say, copy his example of relationships. Please don't, don't do that if you've read Genesis 16. Uh, it doesn't say, copy his example of guidance. It says, do what he did and trust the gospel promises of the faithful God. And here we see that God's kingdom grows. His promise goes forward to new generations and more people precisely as his people trust his promise. Abraham and that servant, even when it seemed impractical, improbable, unpragmatic, even when it seemed to make things harder, they clung to God's word of promise and they built their lives on it. Now listen, the... um, The pragmatist in me comes to God and says, if I'm going to be friends with God, I need to to do my bit. You know, even if God's going to get me in by forgiving me, just tell me which bits I need to do, and that way I'll know that I can be close to him. The pragmatist in me works like that. But the promise says there is nothing you can do. But Jesus died to reconcile you to God and to secure all these promises for you. So trust him. And when Paul looks back on the life of Abraham in Galatians 4, he looks back at Genesis 16 and the Hagar incident and says that is precisely the sort of mindset we have when we say, just tell me which bits I need to do. And in fact, what we need to do is just trust the promise of God that Jesus can secure our forgiveness. Let me tell you, if you're here and you're just looking into Christian things, these promises are so good because they're free if you accept them and believe them, not because of something about yourself, but because he has promised them and he is faithful. But listen, when it comes to the growth of God's kingdom, there are all sorts of ways where in my pragmatism, I think that there are things that I ought to be doing in addition to what God has promised Uh, You know, just like the Church Times, I have to be honest that sometimes when I talk to my friends, I think that, the pragmatist in me thinks that, if I just kept quiet about the bits of the Bible I thought they wouldn't like, you know, the bits that say Jesus is the only way to God, or that people need to repent of the way they've treated God and other people and ask him for forgiveness, the bits about God's view on marriage or sexuality or gender or any of those bits, I think if I just keep quiet about them, they're much more likely to want to know Jesus and come into God's kingdom. But God says it's as we tell people about Jesus from the Bible. Whether it's a Bible open or whether we're telling them things about Jesus that are faithful to what the Bible says, that that is how God brings people into his kingdom. Jesus from the Bible. And faith takes God at his word, trusts his promise even though that seems unpragmatic, even though I can't control the consequences or how people will react. But here's one more thought. 
The pragmatist in me says, if I'm really going to win my friends for Christ, if I'm really going to succeed in growing things, I need to be more impressive, to do more, to, um, to be a much more powerful person. And God promises that he hears the prayers of his people. What could be less pragmatic or practical than to shut yourself in your room on your own and get down on your knees and ask God to change people's minds about Jesus. And yet God says he hears the prayers of his children. He promises to. And faith trusts his promises. God's kingdom grows as his people trust his promises. Even when it makes things harder. Even when it seems unpragmatic. And here's the, uh, here's the beautiful thing about Genesis 24. We see in Genesis 24 that God is faithful to his promises and that Abraham and his servant really were right to trust him. You see, God's kingdom grows because he is a faithful God. Have a look down at verse 15 with me. Before the servant had even finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Rebecca has got a lot of potential. She's from the right family. And more than that, verse 16, she's very beautiful. And she's single. But is she the one that God's provided? And so verse 17, the servant hurries to meet her and says, please give me a little water from your jar. Verse 18, drink, my lord, she said. And quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And we're thinking, no, you're supposed to water the camel. But it's okay. After she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too. And we breathe a sigh of relief because here is the girl who's watering the camels. Here is the one God has provided. And the servant sums it up beautifully in verses 26 and 27. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The Lord, the God of Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness or faithfulness to my master. And this is a phrase that's come up already, hasn't it, in verses uh, 12 and 14. It's a phrase we'll see again in verse 48. The God of kindness and the God of faithfulness. The, The word for kindness there, it's a word that comes up over and over again in the Old Testament for God's commitment to his promises. His generosity in keeping every single promise that he's made to his people, even though we don't deserve it, and there's nothing in us that deserves it. Genesis 24 shows us that God is a kind God, a faithful God, a God who makes promises and keeps them. The the God of heaven and earth has bound himself to his people with gospel promises. And just notice how God keeps the promises in this chapter Uh, We skipped out um, a section from the middle of the reading, 
Um, you probably noticed that. And um, if you just glance over it quickly, the reason we skipped it is that basically the servant goes into Rebecca's family and, um, and he says, look, before I'll have any dinner, I just want to tell you what's happened. And then he repeats everything that was read for us already, almost word for word again over the next few paragraphs. What Abraham said, what I prayed, and what God did. But you see, the the point of the repetition is that God was faithful to his promise in every small detail. There are no drastic miracles in this chapter, are there? We've seen some in the life of Abraham so far, but here in Genesis 24, we're not confronted with some powerful and impressive miracle, but on the surface, with a coincidence, the right girl at the right well with the right willingness to um, get up close and personal with camels. And the servant sees that this is God's faithfulness in the small details of life. God keeps his promise precisely by being the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord who is in control not just of the big and dramatic, but of the everyday things of who meets who and and even the direction of someone's heart, because at the end of the reading, we saw Rebecca eager and willing to go and to be married to Isaac. I've, um, I've got a close friend, and um, I, I won't name him to protect the guilty, but he's the sort of guy, he's, um, he's, he's great on the big stuff of friendship, but he, he is rather scatterbrained. So he was one of the ushers at my wedding, and... Um, and <laughs> I'm thrilled to say that he did make it to the wedding and he'd even remembered to bring the right clothes and that sort of thing. But um, he hadn't brought with him um, just about anything else that he needed, including, crucially, the programmes for the wedding, which we managed to recover just in time for the first few guests to be starting to arrive. But um, he's the sort of guy, you see, I'm sure we've all got friends like this, who's good on the, the sort of the big stuff but pretty hopeless with the fine detail. And sometimes I feel like like I'm a bit like that, to be honest. And um, my family would probably definitely say that I am. The thing is, I think that often I actually think about God like that. Do you ever think about God like that? I think that when it comes to the big and dramatic stuff in the Bible, the sort of the really big event stuff that God shows up and is faithful, but when it comes down to the everyday decision... Should I tell the truth at work? Can I trust God that a Christian should only marry another Christian? Or can I trust him that through the hard things I'm experiencing at the moment, he will make me more like Jesus, even though they are hard? (coughs) When it comes to those small things, I can treat God like he's sort of scatterbrained and like... I need to do the worrying. I need to do the pragmatics. (coughs) But you see, if God is sovereign, if God is the Lord of heaven and earth, over all the small details, then I can cling to his promises and obey his commands and leave the consequences to him. Do what's right and leave the consequences to God. I can trust him that when I speak to my friends about Jesus and give them the whole undiluted truth about Jesus, 
that for some they'll see and they'll love him. I can trust him that when I pray, he really does hear and answer. You see, God, God hasn't promised you and me that he will definitely provide us with a wife like Isaac. He hasn't promised us children. He hasn't promised us a comfortable and easy life. In fact, he's promised us quite the opposite if we follow Jesus. And he hasn't promised that he will grow our individual church. But he has made stunning promises to you if you're a Christian believer, if you trust in Jesus. He's promised that through the circumstances of life, he will make you more like Christ, that even when they're hard, he can use those for good to teach you to, tr- to trust him. He's promised you that one day he will get you to that glorious place, the new heavens and the new earth, where you can enjoy a relationship with him forever, unspoiled by sin and suffering. He's promised that when you speak to people about Jesus from the Bible, he'll help you as you speak. He's promised that the Spirit will help you as you pray and as you seek to live for him in the details of daily life. And he's promised that he will build his church, the kingdom of God, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so do you see, we can, we can trust him with the individual decisions, big and small, that he will grow his kingdom and his people in the everyday, just as Abraham and his servant did. God's kingdom grows as his people trust his promises because he is a faithful God who will keep every one of them. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we trust in you, our shield and our defender, our faithful God, Lord of heaven and earth, who's bound himself to us by promises. Please help us to be those who trust those gospel promises more and more this week in the details. In Jesus' name, amen.